Bitachon does not mean everything is going to work out fine. Bitachon means even when things do not work out fine, God is with me in that moment. And so I turn to prayer with Bitachon saying, things are not working out fine. Our people are being butchered. Our people are being murdered. But even in this hour, I know I'm not alone. And I know that the God who created heaven and earth wants us to fight that and has told us to sanctify life, even when there are those who wish to bring death to the world. I'm Scott Kahn, and this is The Orthodox Conundrum. This is The Orthodox Conundrum on JewishCoffeeHouse.com. I'm Scott Kahn. As I record this, I'm getting ready to go to Har Herzl, the Israeli military cemetery. A soldier from Ramat Shiloh, just a five-minute drive from our house, was killed in battle yesterday in Gaza. We know his family. His father was with me in yeshiva years ago, and the soldier was in the same class as one of our children in elementary school. Isolated figures, the number of soldiers killed that we find online, is a daily reminder of the tragedy that unfolded on October 7th and that continues to unfold. Attaching names to those numbers is very different. And when one of those names is a name that you know, it brings the reality of war home in an immediate and horrible way. It's the sort of experience that can make anyone religious ask questions regarding their assumptions about God and his relationship to us. I think that asking these questions is not a religious problem, but a vital religious necessity. Our greatest exemplars in Tanakh regularly ask these questions. There are whole books like Eov and Eicha that are dedicated to what we would now call Hashkafic questions. Pretending that these questions don't exist is a sign, I think, of religious superficiality. On the other hand, asking questions is far from easy because we may not like the answers that we find. People who choose faith and who are also troubled by the problem of evil in the world and God's apparently hidden presence sometimes need chizuk, that is, encouragement and methods so that they can live with the unanswerable questions while moving forward in their commitment to God and Torah. In order to provide that chizuk, I was honored to host Rabbanit Shana Goldberg and Rabbi Johnny Solomon. Over the course of our conversation, we talked about Hester Panim, or God's hiding his face, the meaning of the Talmudic dictum that everything God does is for the good, the proper type of introspection in the wake of tragedy, the meaning of bitachon, or trust in God, and what it does not mean, practical methods to help people hold on to faith, and more. This is not a detached philosophical analysis of theodicy. Instead, it's a religious conversation designed to help people who are troubled by current events, but who plan to maintain their faith, learn ways that they can move forward in their religious commitment while remaining intellectually honest. We'll get to that conversation in a moment. First, let me remind you to subscribe to the Orthodox Conundrum podcast wherever you get your podcasts, and please rate it and write a review. Please subscribe to my Substack Orthodox Conundrum Commentary. It's free, and the link is in the description of this podcast. Last week, I posted three short articles on the subjects of gaslighting, moral clarity, and the Jewish future after the rally in Washington, D.C. Check it out and subscribe today. And finally, remember that JCH Podcast Productions is the best place for you to go in order to produce your podcast from start to finish. Write to me at scott at jewishcoffeehouse.com so that we can discuss helping you make a high-quality, professional, and popular podcast. Rabbanit Shana Goldberg, the author of What Do You Really Want?, teaches in the Selike Abraham Beit Midrash for Women in Migdalos, is a Yoetzet Halacha, a contributing editor for Derecheha, womenandmitzvot.org, and a frequent blogger for the Times of Israel. 
She lives in Alon Shfut, Israel, with her husband Judah and their five children. Ravjani Solomon is a Torah teacher, halachic guide, and spiritual coach. He teaches for Matan, Herzog Global, Melton, and LSJS, and he works as the virtual rabbi, offering online spiritual coaching, halachic consultations, and Torah study sessions to men, women, and couples. Beyond this, Ravjani writes a popular daily insight on Dafyomi. He is contributor to the RZ Weekly podcast. He volunteers at Sohar to perform weddings for secular Israelis, and he's a posek in his local shul in Evan Shmuel. Rabbi Shana Goldberg and Rabbi Johnny Solomon, thank you very much for joining me today on the Orthodox Conundrum podcast. Thank you for having us. Thank you. The events of the past six weeks, starting with the massacre on October 7th, the kidnappings, the sudden sense of insecurity that so many people are experiencing both in Israel and in the diaspora, along with this massive increase in anti-Semitism around the world and open calls for the end of the state of Israel in ways that at least I've never experienced before. These have thrown many Jews, they put them into a tailspin. I've seen some people express the desire to increase their religious commitment. I've seen other people express a difficulty with religious commitment at all and trying to understand how God could do this sort of thing to us. I want to avoid a real philosophical discussion of theodicy, why bad things happen to good people, etc. today. That's an important conversation, but I really more today want to talk about emuna, bitachon, faith, ways of maintaining our faith for those who want to maintain their faith in times of tragedy, in times of trouble like we are experiencing now. Really, I suppose, chizuk for people who are committed Jews who are looking for reasons to continue as they are. Let me begin by asking each of you to briefly mention your own initial reaction to October 7th, meaning on a personal level, what happened that day? How did you hear about it? When did you realize what was actually happening? And what was your emotional response? Shana, let's start with you. Okay, it's hard to even think back to that day because it was so overwhelming. But um, at 6.30 in the morning in a lunch foot, I woke up from nonstop rumbling and booms that I heard in the distance that sounded like someone was moving furniture around upstairs. And I remember like half in my sleep saying to my husband, what's going on? What's happening? It seemed pretty clear that there was some kind of army activity or something, maybe even not so far from us where we've heard things like that sometimes before. Um, but we didn't know. And then a little before eight o'clock, when I was in shul, they interrupted the davening right before Shema to announce that something was actually going on in the South and that there had been rockets. So I left quickly to tell my sister who was home with little kids so that she'd be prepared in case there was a tyrant. And then I went home because my 10 year old daughter was still in bed and I didn't want her to be alone. And we actually heard sirens at that point in sounding nearby communities. And then we came back to shul and that was the first time there was a siren um, in the middle of the Kiddush. We were in the middle of Simchat Torah. And um, during throughout the davening, they gave little updates here and there, but there were a lot of children in the shul. So until like all the kids kind of left and they gave them candy bags somewhere else, at that point, Rav Ramon, who's the Rav in Alon Shvud, shared with the community that there had been infiltrations, that people had been murdered, that there were people kidnapped, and that Israel had actually declared, you know, a full, uh, full-scale war. And we began to see soldiers all over the community putting on their uniforms and and heading out. And I guess there was this simultaneous feeling that anyone who was in the middle of Shabbat or Chag felt here in Israel, which is on the one hand, you kind of wanted things. Shabbat to end so that you would be able to open the news and know exactly what was going on. And at the same time, this like huge amount of uh, dread 
that like, I don't want Shabbat to end because then we're going to have to find out and then we're going to have to deal with this. And uh, I think my initial response over those first few days was this mix of devastating pain, um, paralyzing pain, actually, uh, together with total panic. I could say like on a personal level, um, I've always been terrified of infiltration and this attack kind of confirmed my biggest fears. And after that initial feeling of helplessness, I went into you know, full scale, like home alone mode. Remember that movie? I, I think I was 11 when I saw that movie. And I, I felt like I was like, in that movie, I, I started collecting knives and blocks and even my hot water kumkum to put into the mamad in case we actually had to fight off terrorists. And when you take a step back, it sounds absolutely ridiculous. Um, but I think that's where our, our minds, a lot of people's minds, not just mine, um, are at at this time. And um, I guess since those initial days, I've definitely had better moments um, and worse moments. Sometimes I feel strong. I can't say that I am succeeding at maintaining strong faith at every moment. Usually definitely worse when I get into bed and then your mind wanders to hostages or to close relatives on the front lines or to all kinds of scary things. But I guess as we'll talk about, I'm not sure that faith means that we have to be feeling amazing and hopeful and wonderful at every second. Okay, thank you for that personal story and explaining how you felt. Johnny, how about you? So I live a little bit further south in a place called Evanchuel, technically 20 kilometers from the Gaza border. Um, and so uh, Simchat Torah morning, Shabbat Simchat Torah morning, began with sirens about uh, 6.16, 6.30, repeated sirens. Now, where I live, although we're actually quite near to the border, there's a lot of fields nearby, so although we feel every operation that happens in Gaza physically, my house shakes, every boom we hear, we feel, it goes through your whole body, there's actually generally fewer sirens because of the, the, the fact that there's more fields around. It's, shall we say, not worth it for our terrorist neighbors to shoot towards our direction. But repeated sirens already told us that we're in a very, very different state uh, the one that we have been used to for, obviously, all, all our life here. Um, and so that happened to say about 6.15, 6.30, we're bringing the children into the mamad uh, and waiting there repeatedly. Uh, I'm a posek of my shul. Shul around here starts around about 8 o'clock. So um, by 7 o'clock, I went out of my house. I saw my neighbor quickly rush away in army uniform. And I knew, obviously, things are very tense. Things are very, very difficult. Uh, but by that point, all we knew that there was lots of sirens and that there was something happening. And so I gathered in shul with uh, some other friends, and we said, obviously, we're not doing shul here. My synagogue doesn't have a mamad. It's part of a building of two other shuls. There's only two safe rooms for three communities, of which neither are necessarily of sufficient size for all full community. And so we said, okay, well, it's Simchat Torah, but uh, it's not safe to be here. And we said, let's each divide the community into streets. It's a small yeshuv. So we'll take a Sefer Torah to this street and they'll do a mini uh, service, a bit like we did with Corona. Obviously, we'll try and make sure that everyone's within uh, 30 seconds of their home. That's how long we have. If a siren alarms uh, and we need to be in a safe room. So I have some neighbors uh, who also attend the Ashkenazi Shul in Evan Shmuel, and we agreed, let's do that. And I brought a Sefer Torah to my house and we were just about to start uh, coming into my house to have a service of 10, 12 people, obviously much more modest, much less celebratory, but we felt there's still justification for having a service. 
but then one of the sons of my neighbor then was also called up and one of those families was supposed to be joining some community and they're obviously just breaking down because they realize if their son is now going into the army it's not just a handful of people this is a massive call up and then a few minutes later uh, a police car drove by and said 50 to 100 terrorists at that point that's how many they thought have infiltrated the country they're holding uh, people hostage in kibbutzim go in your houses and lock the doors because we're only 20 kilometers from Gaza, and uh, we're not too far from other places that could do us harm. So that's what we did. The, the, the service was supposed to happen in my house, didn't happen. Everyone quickly went to their houses, locked their doors, and then you're there, you're in your house, and you wonder what to do. There is real concern of a real threat. By that point, uh, I turned on my phone with we have community WhatsApp groups and people already contacting each other whether we need to set up security immediately to secure the yeshuv. Because we had been up early because of the sirens or my family were awake, I said, I don't know what the day is going to be, but let's first daven. We still need to daven. So like we did with Corona, we sat down in the main room. We all davened. And because we had a Sefer Torah there, I said, you know, let's read from the Torah. We were supposed to be reading so I opened the Sefer Torah as it sat on my dining room table. And I laid Parsha Vazota Baracha, and it was very powerful because you read these words, right? get rid of the enemies and destroy them. When right now, in a moment where it's quite clear, we've never faced this kind of emergency before, and those verses speak to you. And, uh, and then you go on and you read, and you say, but this is our land. We need to defend it. So after we davened, and because already it was quite clear from the WhatsApp groups that there was very serious things happening and we were, may well be in danger, so we put on the news, uh, we put on the television, and from then on, basically about 10.30, 11 o'clock in the morning, obviously because it's still Shabbat, I turned on the news, but it stayed on. And so we followed what took place on a moment-by-moment basis, and it was petrifying. It was petrifying to listen to uh, women calling from uh, cupboards, from Amadim, calling news stations saying, we're alone, there are, there are terrorists outside our house, there are terrorists inside our house. And you can't believe, you know, you read Anne Frank's diary and you're seeing this, not just in terms of one family, but then more and more and more. And the news coverage is trying to get the army to find these houses, find these people, save these people. And, and so we're opening up our tehillim, we're davening, we're davening, trying to say help these people and and it was heartbreaking it was heartbreaking see what was happening to our people to our country in those moments and so you know Simchat Torah was not Simchat Torah and we davened we cried and we stayed locked in a house and of course as Shabbat then ended things got worse in places like Stirot if you're aware of what took place in the police station there but uh, it was a very tough day. Again, thank you for being so honest in your recollection. Johnny, when you talk about davening and davening, and obviously we don't know how tefillah works. We don't know what it means if a tefillah is answered or not accepted. But certainly in some situations, we would say that it looks like some of these tefillah were not answered. Some of those people did not make it. Obviously some did. I have described this in a different context as a time of hester panim, a time when 
God was hiding his face. In fact, I was thinking about that even this morning. I'm a Kohen. So during Birkat Kohanim, we say, Ya'er Hashem Panavei Lecha, may God shine his face towards you, Vichuneka, and show you grace. Just thinking about our conversation that was coming later today, I was thinking about that idea of Hashem shining his face or sometimes hiding his face and not shining his face. So this is a loaded question. Perhaps the premises are not correct, but it seems to me that a lot of us experienced a form of Hester Panim. And I'd like to ask both of you, Johnny, we'll start with you, about how you relate to this concept of divine hiddenness when it affects us as a whole people. Like Ravaren Lichtenstein says, I don't have God's phone number. I'm not going to describe and I'm not going to make any absolute comment about how God's operating in this world. I do know that we have a Pasuk in Sher Shirim, which describes God operating on two different levels. We talk about how Kodesh Baruch looks through the world like through a window where we see God and God sees us. And how God sees the world sometimes through a lattice where God sees us, but we don't see God. And that feeling certainly occurs, whether we can say God is operating in terms of Hester Panim, that's not something I'm prepared to address. Whether we feel that that's how things are happening, uh, I think that's fair to say that some people feel that way. Very, very fair to say indeed. You mentioned about prayers, and I talked about prayers. I mean, when you're stuck in a house and your house is locked, and sort of seeing your people being murdered, that's what you do because there's not much else you can do. That's where you turn to because the most important shelf in a Jewish home should be the one where there are Sidurim and Tehilim and Baruch Hashem. That is the most used shelf in my home. But again, in terms of the efficacy of prayers, what does it do? That's obviously a, a wider question. But it shows my recognition of God's presence in the world, my belief that God rules over the world. What it doesn't say is that God is a terrorist shooting bullets at my people, my brothers and sisters. What it doesn't say is I blame God for evil people doing evil deeds. It means I turn to God and I say, give us the strength to fight evil because you commanded us to fight evil. Give us the strength to fight as a people because you told us to defend ourselves when enemies come at us. And tefillah is a cry out to God in a time of need. Tefillah is a cry out to God in a time of war. And by the way, tzara and milchama are different and that's incredibly important to note. But tefillah is also way to remind yourself that you're not alone. And by recognizing in that moment of loneliness, both each of us unto ourselves, and in that moment, houses locked, frozen, both with fear and in terms of security. And crying out to God is a cry out to say, we don't want to be alone in this battle against evil and help us. And yes, listening to those phone calls, those desperate phone calls, where... The army was unable to get there in time, was beyond heartbreaking. Words do not describe my anguish in those moments, and obviously all others too. But those people also cried out to God, and they felt that even in that hour of need, God was with them. And there's a really important point about bitachon, which perhaps we may well get to. Bitachon does not mean everything is going to work out fine. Bitachon means... Even when things do not work out fine, God is with me in that moment. And so I turned to prayer with Bitachon, saying, things are not working out fine. Our people are being butchered. Our people are being murdered. 
But even in this hour, I know I'm not alone. And I know that the God who created heaven and earth wants us to fight that and has told us to sanctify life even when there are those who wish to bring death to the world. Shana, how about you? How do you relate to the concept of Hester Panim, of an apparent divine hiddenness? I use the term apparent divine hiddenness because at least in my Hashkafat Olam, the way I understand the world, God is everywhere, and there are times when he shows himself more or less, but it appears to us as human beings as a form of divine hiddenness. So that's my assumption in certain situations. What's your feeling about that concept of Hester Panim, specifically as we've been experiencing it, perhaps, for the past six weeks? Yes, I, I very much relate to both what you and uh, Johnny said right now, both in the sense of that I never understood our relationship to, with God to be one where everything is promised to be hunky-dory or flowers and rainbows all the time. So it's more on that level of... Um, feeling that distance or feeling that hiddenness, even as I really believe, as uh, Johnny said now, that God is right here with us. Um, I also think, like you said, how is this affecting us as a people? I think this is the first time in a very long time that we are experiencing as a Jewish people around the world, this level of challenge and pain and difficulty and fear. But it's not the first time that, let's say, Israel, even in the not so distant future, uh, not so distant past, has gone through difficult things, or that we as individuals experience Hester Panim on a personal level. And I know for me, um, trying to philosophize about these issues or trying to understand how God works, or even um, the place that some people are going now of like, oh, this is, you know, the Hester Panim be before the ultimate Ka'ula and the ultimate redemption. For me, um, those issues don't validate the struggle that we're feeling right now and that feeling of God feeling hidden or God feeling distant. And I more go to the practical place of like, how can I best cope with this? Or how can I help my children best cope with these feelings? How can I help my students? And for me, the first thing is to really acknowledge that pain and that fear and not deny it or not to fight it, to say it does feel hard right now that God feels hidden. And uh, there's something powerful that I've shared in other forms, but I'm going to share it again now because I think that it's really, really helped me. And I know that it's helped others, which is something that I heard from uh, Rav Dov Zinger, the Rosh Yeshiva of Makor Chaim. Um, he came to speak in Migdaluz, the Beit Midrash, where I teach in November 2014, which was a few months after the end of the last really major war in Israel, Soketan, uh, Operation Protective Edge. He came in November because we realized as a Beit Midrash that a lot of us, not only students, also faculty, hadn't really fully processed the events of that past summer, which began with the kidnapping of two of his uh, beloved students, Naftali Frankel and Galad Shire, along with Ayal Bifrach, and ended with their murder and then and then a war. And uh, he came to share his reflections and give strength to all of us as we were processing all of those traumatic events. And I remember that as soon as he finished his formal remarks and he opened it up for questions, a young woman asked him, Rav Zinger, how did you get through that period of uncertainty or what we would call now a period of hysteropanim, a period of like absolute terror where you, where you didn't know where your students were and what would be with them. And I remember he responded, uh, he said, I'm sorry, but I don't understand the question. So this student began to repeat herself. 
And she uh, was interrupted by Rev Zinger, who said, no, no, I understood the words that you said, but I don't understand the premise of your question. I don't relate to the assumption that you're making. And he said to her that language of how, how did you get through this? He's like, that assumes that life is always supposed to be great that we're supposed to kind of live and enjoy life and take advantage of it and always feel up and happy. And that when life is more difficult or we feel like God's presence is far from us, then we're just supposed to kind of like get through that time as quickly as possible and as smoothly as we can. And, you know, and, and, and to get back to like the way life is supposed to be. And I remember he said that I don't relate to life like that. He said, I try to live life as deeply and as fully as I can. And that means that when there's time of happiness, I'm fully in that and fully feeling it. But when there's a time of pain or sorrow or complexity of distance, I'm also fully in that and I'm fully feeling that also. And I don't try to run away from it or get through it or think about how to just kind of, you know, make ourselves feel better that this is, he's like, I'm in it and I'm growing from it and I'm experiencing meaning and I kind of fully embrace it. And it made such an impression on me. I'll be very honest, like I'm a person who likes control and my and my equilibrium could be thrown off. Like if I can't find, you know, my 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 cell phone charger, it's like ah, I don't feel calm inside. I like when things are like neat and organized and I have a handle on them. And it, it has so helped me, this idea um, of being able to kind of like lean into pain or discomfort or even that feeling of God being far and not try to explain it away. It actually, I find, empowers me to be able to deal with it better. So I think to be able to say, yes, it may really feel right now like we're in a time of hestir panim and we don't need to try to whitewash or explain it away. We could kind of like embrace it and be in it and and find meaning in it and move forward step by step with that at the same time. Okay. Thank you both. Those are really important points. I want to actually take something that Johnny said and move in that direction, the issue of bitachon, which is trust in God. And also along with what Shana said just now, quoting Rav Zinger, this idea of you have to fully experience it and the goal isn't to always have happiness and what we might externally defined as goodness of some sort. I'd like to take those points and ask you about the well-known line that Chazal have said, everything that God does is for the good. Indeed, many thinkers, people like the Ramchal, for example, and Dat Funot have said that in the ultimate future, after the Gula Shlemo, perhaps after Tchiat whenever, then and only then we'll be able to understand how everything was for the good. At the same time, even though now we can't say that we see it like that. Ultimately, that's true. Now, not everyone agrees with that perspective, that everything is, so to speak, for the good. They might say that everything in a general sense will ultimately lead to something good, but you can't look at a particular tragic situation and say, yes, this particular thing was good. I'd like to know how each of you relate to that idea, the idea of trusting in God, understanding that God is doing something good. I'll conclude my question by asking it sort of like this. I know that some people, I was talking to someone, they say, well, ultimately, we're going to find out that whatever tragic thing happened, that was ultimately good. And my personal way of relating to that is, I don't think you can pin that on God, meaning God wasn't doing that. It's not that God wanted a certain person to die so much as 
for reasons that we'll never understand and he doesn't want us to understand, he let it happen, which is a very different sort of thing. He didn't intervene to stop something from happening rather than, well, he caused that person to die. In fact, I've heard some people even say, oh, well, you know, this person died because of X and they start giving reasons for it as if we could actually understand the divine mind and say this was a good thing. I'm throwing out a lot right now, but Shana, how would you respond to that kind of attitude, that concept that everything God does is for the good, and then relating it to the actual real world in which we live? So I live in tension, as I think many of us do, in one way or another, between my belief that God, Hashem, runs the world, and there's some overall grand plan, as you just mentioned, and my real belief that um, we were given Bechira Chavshit that God created human beings with free will and that we have the ability to make our own decisions, which have very real consequences in the world. And, and not just that I believe in that. I think the fact that God created us that way is what gives all the meaning to life because otherwise we would all be the equivalent of a pre-programmed robots. Now, how these two things work together is uh, an age old question. What I could say is that I'm really bothered by and I really struggle when people come and straight up with no qualifications will say, well, if something happens, then that's exactly as God wanted it to happen. Because then where is man's responsibility in all that? I find that it's so dangerous to think like that. It could literally lead people to say, oh, well, if God let me kill this person, then clearly he wanted that to happen and I'm just doing his will, meaning it becomes a way to justify everything. And I've literally heard in my life sometimes people who act completely inappropriately and say, well, if that's how it happened, then that's how it was meant to happen. What? Like, how, how is that? We, we can't live like that. Um, I think, though, on the other hand, to say that God is not aware or involved at all in the world and he created a world and then he kind of let it be, that doesn't work for me either. And it certainly does not bring me any comfort. You know, that what you said in the beginning of like that feeling sometimes today of like, well, if this is how the world is, then I don't believe in God anymore. I mean, I, I can understand and relate to that feeling. But but now what? doesn't leave me feeling better to feel that the world is totally random and just anything could happen and there's complete, you know, uh, chaos. So in my own life, I prefer to hold on to both truths at the same time and not think too much about how they work together. In general, by the way, as you may be getting the sense, I, 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 try, I don't find it helpful to spend too much time pondering questions that I know we are never going to have the answer to, at least not in uh, in our lifetime here in Olympazet. So I often come back to a quote um, that I actually heard from Dr. David Schatz, who was a professor of mine in Stern College. He shared this quote in a religion and philosophy class. It's a quote from Napoleon, which may be ironic, but I draw strength from it. Um, he quoted him as saying, when I fight, I fight as if it all depends on me. And when I pray, I pray as if it all depends on God. And that's how I live. I live with that tension. Um, that I don't know how it works. Um, I try to do my hishjabud and, you know, take responsibility and expect other people to take responsibility. And at the same time, when I daven, I daven as if somehow it all depends on God and try to hold those two things together at once. Okay, thank you, Shana. You know, when I hosted Rav Yoni Rosenzweig a few weeks ago, he quoted Rabbi Sachs, who in turn, I believe, was quoting Rav Rabinovich from Ali Adumim and saying that the reason, quote-unquote, that bad things happen is something that we can never know because God wouldn't want us to know that because if we knew the reason, we would reconcile ourselves to it and say, well, I guess that was supposed to happen. And 
that is exactly the opposite of what God wants. He wants us, as you quote Napoleon, to say, to pray to him as if he's in charge, but to do something about the evil as if he's not there. I believe it was also Rev Cook who said the place of atheism is when you see evil in the world. You have to be an atheist, quote unquote, to pretend that it's all up to you. There's a certain point where you have to pretend God's not going to get involved. This is only going to change if it's up to me. He was saying that every phenomenon in the world has a positive side. So he was saying a lack of divinity the positive side is to rely on yourself rather than relying on God to fix that particular problem. Johnny, what would you say about some of these issues of bitachon and this idea of God only doing good, but the evidence is not necessarily like that in front of us? So first, I just want to say I very much resonate with what uh, Robinette Goldberg both said, and and she writes about this beautifully in her book in terms of living with tension. And this is something that we need to train ourselves to do. This week's parasha, we read about Ka. Uh, who experiences something she doesn't understand. We're told the Terchli Droshet Hashem, she goes to seek uh, God or the advice representing the Ratzon Hashem. But what people think is that there's always an answer. And a point stressed by Rav Soloveitchik, stressed by Rav Lichtenstein, stressed by Rav Amital, basically stressed by all the greatest of Jewish thinkers is we've got to be able to live with questions. The Droshet Hashem does not mean you get answers. Your task is to seek your task is to cry out. But don't be so presumptuous to think that you're going to get answers or don't presumption that there is going to be an answer that is something that you can necessarily fathom. That's point number one. In terms of bitachon, uh, and I think you know I do these uh, spiritual coaching sessions and the topic of bitachon often arises, our misunderstanding of bitachon often arises. And a game-changing essay is Rav Lichtenstein's essay on Bitachon. And uh, I'll mention two things, both in relation to the quote you mentioned of Rabbi Akiva, but in general to your comment about good. And so he surveys the views about Bitachon, where people assume that Bitachon means everything is going to work out for the best. And he mentions those thinkers who do seem to subscribe to that point of view. But then he quotes the Karakemach, who says, and I'm going to quote to you from his essay, a person must surrender his soul to God if grants to come to kill him or to force him to abrogate the Torah. You should prefer to give up your life rather than to go against the Torah. I mean, mitzvah kiddush Hashem. One who gives up their life under such circumstances performed an act of bitachon. And you think, how is that bitachon? It works out that you've been murdered. You've been killed. And Rav Lichtenstein then goes on and says the following. This approach, which he subscribes to, does not attempt to scatter the clouds of misfortune, try to raise expectations, or strive to whitewash a dark future. It does not claim that it will all work out for the best, either individually or nationally. On the contrary, expresses a steadfast commitment, even if the outcome will be bad, we will remain reliant on and connected to God. We will remain faithful until the end and shall not exchange our trust in God for dependence on man. This approach does not claim that God will remain at our side, rather asks us to remain at his side. And Rav Lichtenstein then ends his essay with reference to Rabbi Akiva, because he quoted, And we assume, firstly, that we should all be like Rabbi Akiva, which I think is an absurd presumption. Secondly, we assume also that that expression was fully reflective of his whole scope of life. And if we know about the end of Rabbi Akiva's life, when your skin is being torn off by the Romans, we don't hear him saying those words. There's no record that those words were said then. Of course, he dies on Kiddush Hashem. But the point that Rabbi Lichtenstein makes here is, don't misrepresent Rabbi Akiva, right? Don't think that that's how we're all supposed to approach the world. There are moments, of course, 
where that modus makes a lot of sense, but it's not required. In fact, uh, arguably, it's not even reflective of normative Jewish thought that we should always adopt its all for best attitude for the moments that happen in life. Because as the Kadah Kemach says, sometimes that involves people brutally murdering Jews. And it's not for the best, neither for them or their families or for our nation. Our point then is to say, even in that moment, God is with us. But it doesn't. it's not like a movie where it's happily ever after. Some things are not happily ever after. You know, if I could just add one thing to what you said, Johnny, in that Gemara about Rabbi Akiva, he mentioned everything God does is for the best. But he mentions a story that happened to him when he was walking at night with a candle, a rooster and a donkey. The candle blew out. The animals died. And he said, no matter what, everything that happens is for the good. And that night, a city nearby was sacked and soldiers came and murdered people. And he said, see, everything was for the best. They didn't find me. But obviously, the macro story beyond that, it was not the best for all those people who were killed by that marauding troop, which means that on a certain level, one can say that, but it obviously isn't the end of the story. It wasn't quite happily ever after if we look at the story in larger context. And this invocation often of these kind of bite-sized bumper sticker statements of Chazal which have their place in moments, but we assume thereby can speak to all moments, especially the most difficult, is one of these uh, emona errors that we do. We assume that we can answer all questions with a simple statement, and I don't think we can, nor should we. And those who claim that they can, again, it's both hubris and false. Uh, They are ultimately false claimingly to be prophets, our task is to lidrosh et Hashem. It is to ask questions of God. Lidrosh means sometimes to challenge and say, why, Lama? Just for you to know, yesterday I went to Re'im. Yesterday I was in Be'eri. I promise you, I cried out those words, Lama. I cried out those words with tears on my face. I cried out lidrosh et Hashem. I don't expect an answer because I also then see our brothers and sisters fighting evil. And the answer is, I don't know why this happened, but I know what our response is. It is to stand up for morality, to stand up for good, to stand up for truth, stand up for life. And so Lidrosh happened, but I, I'm not expecting some echo in a room with blood-stained floor and spatter in a kindergarten. I don't expect an answer to someone and say, the reason for this kid to be murdered, the reason for this family to be destroyed is this. My task is to seek, but not to expect simple answers for heartbreaking questions. That actually leads to another question I wanted to ask you both. It's most famously said by the Rambam, but by others as well, in Hilchotani Yot, the laws of fast days, that when Sarot, bad things happen, our responsibility, apart from prayer and fasting, is to do cheshbon hanefesh, to try and figure out what we could personally be doing better, how we could respond to this by improving our own lives. And I'd like to understand from both of you how you relate to this particular Rambam. The reason I'm asking it is, is Rambam saying, in your opinion, that by doing Cheshbon HaNefesh, we can find the reason, with a capital R, that this happened, and therefore, by improving our actions, we will therefore mitigate the problem. We will somehow become better people, take away the thing we were doing wrong, and in the future, this won't happen. That's one way of understanding the Rambam. A different way of understanding the Rambam is by saying, well... This is simply the response, and it's not a reason issue. It's not about trying to root out the thing that happened, and therefore it won't happen again. It's rather 
in some ways, almost to echo Ralph Salvechik and Koldo Dido Fake, to turn a monologue of God's into a dialogue where we're involved as well. I don't know why God did this. I don't know if there's an answer to that why question or if it's even answerable on any level, but my response has to be to improve myself. I'd like to know from both of you how you think about this particular Rambam and others who say that bad things that happen to us require this kind of cheshbon hanefesh. Johnny? So you mentioned you may want to uh, learn this Rambam, so I'd like to teach it. And I don't mean to sound patronizing because I think it's so misrepresented and so misunderstood, especially in this time. Uh, And I appreciate you give me the heads up because through that, I now understand what the Rambam is and is not saying. So if you open Rambam's Hilchot Taniot Perk Aleph Halacha Aleph, he says, and I'm going to quote to you, right? You got to cry out, you got to blow trumpets about every moment of anguish that the, the community faces. And we would say, well, that's us, that's now, that's what we need to do. And then Halachabet, he tells us that we should perform some kind of cheshbon nefesh, not just fasting, but we should berate ourselves for the sins that we've done that brought this thing upon us. However, he quotes a pasuk from Bamidbar chapter 10, which gives us the lesson that we're supposed to cry out to God and gives us the lesson we're supposed to blow in trumpets. Now, the, int- the whole pasuk says, When war comes to your land, It tells us, when war comes, enemies come, then you should cry out, then you should blow trumpets, and then you shall overcome your enemies. But Rambam's quotation of that pasuk in Halacha Aleph neither mentions war nor mentions land. The only quote is, He brings this pasuk only to tell us to cry out about trumpets. Now, you may well say, well, when rabbis quote verses, they often kind of just only quote part of it. They assume we know the whole verse. But then the Rambam gives examples of when we should be crying out in this fashion. And he talks about he doesn't mention milchama, he doesn't mention attacks, he doesn't mention terrorists, he doesn't mention anything like the very verse which he's quoting. Meaning when you read Halacha Aleph, the Ramam seems to be talking about how we should react to moments just like this, but he takes away every reference to war, every reference to land, and when given examples, he doesn't mention anything like national security or anything like dealing with attacks. And that then makes you wonder, maybe the Rambam's discussion in Perek Aleph, which he then proceeds to say, you need to do a cheshbon nefesh, is not talking about milchama, and is not talking about what happens in your land. Maybe it's talking about other natural disasters, which are the ones he uses as examples. And then later on in Perek Bet, he then quotes from Pasha B'chukotai, and he talks about how a sword should not come through your land, and talks about then the, the, the notion of war, and how we need to fast and cry out. He doesn't talk about that cheshbon and nefesh quite in the same way. And through noticing this in the Rambam, again, it's right there, but we often aren't careful readers of classic sources. I realize that what Rambam is talking about in chapter one is different to what Rambam is talking about in chapter two. One is talking about a time of anguish, which is unexplainable, doesn't come a force of evil. And the other is talking about something very explainable. And our responses need to be different. Unfortunately, having done some thinking, I, I saw that Rav Yudas Shaviv talks about this distinction between chapter one and chapter two. And he says there's a vast difference between crying out Be'et Sarah and crying out Be'et Nilchama. The first is when you think, I don't know how this could have happened. 
And this is a natural disaster, which is beyond any human explanation. And we do a cheshbon and nefesh because we say, maybe it's us. But uh, war, we say, it's them. These people are doing terrible things. Now, that may well be also part of a spiritual flaw in our nation, but I know the address of the people who are terrorizing us. I know who is doing this. And this is a really important point, which Rav Shaviv makes, and I think I've been trying to make in the post I've been writing over the past nearing six weeks. The cry Be'et Sarah is different to the cry Be'et Milchama. Those Chatzot are different. The Chatzot Be'et Sarah is, help us, we don't know what to do, and we feel completely helpless and not sure how to react. That's how I felt in my house that first day, because I'm not a soldier. I was told to lock the door. I was Be'et Sarah. We were in Be'et Milchama. But I wasn't fighting, and I didn't quite exactly know what was happening. I was just praying that our soldiers get to those people in time. But the cry, Be'et Milchama, is not one of weakness, but it's one of strength. It's one to say, let's go and fight. It's one to strengthen the people. And the mitzvah of morale, the mitzvah of strengthening our hearts in times of difficulty is crucial. So conflating chapter one and chapter two means to somehow think that we should be weakening ourselves by blaming ourselves at a time we'll be strengthening ourselves and fighting against our enemy. That distinction is so, so important. And so when people start uh, thinking that this happened because of X, Y, and Z, because of what happened in Kaplan and what happened elsewhere, or because of Pirud and the the disunity, which are all true, and these are all aching moments before October 7th. But the cry we need to do right now is our cry for Milchama, at the same time, obviously, we need to go to those who are in pain. And I visited uh, Shivers, I was just one yesterday. We need to go to those who are burying them dead. And we say, with you, I need, with you, I'm with that pain, because you're wondering why my kid, why my husband. But as a nation, our cry needs to be the cry of fighting, the cry of strength, the cry of morale, the cry of understanding that evil does exist and our task, our mission is to destroy it, to rid ourselves of it. Thank you, Johnny. Shana, how about you? What's the way that you relate to this particular question that we were talking about in the Rambam? I think that it's very natural when bad things happen that we want to understand why and we want to have a reason. And I think it goes back to that same thing I was talking about earlier of wanting control. If we know why something happened, then it's either someone else's fault and I can blame them. Or even if it's my own fault and I can blame myself, then at least I know what I need to fix and what I have to do different so that it doesn't happen again. So it's clear to me that, you know, sometimes that approach could work when we're talking about smaller things or more personal things. And you want to do that kind of as you said, of like finding a reason. So sometimes that could work because there there is some very clear cause and effect and I could find a reason. I could try to make sure that that doesn't happen again. But when we're dealing with the kinds of events like we're dealing with now that are so big and so all encompassing and so clearly beyond any of our understanding and we can't make sense of it because it just doesn't all add up and you can't explain why this person and why not this person and 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 why that and like it doesn't add up then i don't believe that we are meant to engage in the type of which points fingers or claims to have uh, all the answers and you know scott you mentioned before and I was also revisiting that and thinking about that uh, rob salavichuk's response to evil has always resonated with me 
one line that uh, I was looking at that he writes is that man shouldn't ask why evil. He should rather raise the question, what am I supposed to do if confronted with evil? Like Johnny said, how should I behave vis-a-vis evil? And he writes that the latter is a powerful challenge to man, and it's the duty of man to meet this challenge boldly and courageously, meaning that according to Rav Salvechik, when we feel the most vulnerable and the most mortal and the most scared and the most alone and the most like, why is this happening? That's when we need to think about what we need to do now and find that strength, uh, Rav Johnny, as you said, to move forward uh, from here. And Rabbi Johnson Sachs, also as you quoted earlier in The Great Partnership, which is uh, one of my all-time favorite books, like he talks there also about, as you said, evil and how uh, evil is our opportunity to kind of respond and figure out where to move from here. But he's very clear that growing and becoming better as a response to evil may be the only response that we have, but it is in no way a justification for it. It is in no way an explanation of why the evil is happening. There's evil in the world because God created humans with free will and because we live in a physical world. And we should always be trying, obviously, to be the best that we could be. But to try to do the kinds of to think of like why this is happening, when it's these kinds of big situations, I don't think that it's helpful. And I think it's the message of the entire Safer Eov. You know, we know that in Safer Eov, all of Eov's friends try to give explanations for his suffering, even though we, the reader, know that there is no really good explanation. We know that it was all initiated by the Satan. And then it's God himself who comes and says to Eov, where were you when I laid the earth's foundations? Meaning, no human is ever going to be capable of successfully seeing and understanding the big picture. So stop trying to give that kind of reason, as you said, with a capital R. And uh, just one other point that I think about in relation to this question is um, from my years in Alon Shvud and in the Kolel, even of Yeshivat Haratzion, uh, there were a bunch of different times where there were tragedies in the world, like uh, the huge tsunami in 2004, or there was a wedding call that collapsed in Israel, and people try to give explanations. They think they have the reason for why this is happening, either because we're sinning or because, you know, whatever it is that they say. And I remember being present when Rav Luchensin stood up in front of the whole yeshiva and with such passion quoted the Gemara that says about Bilam that dat chamor lo yada, dat elyon yada, that Bilam didn't even know what his donkey was thinking and he thinks he's capable of knowing the thoughts of God like who are you why do you think that you're capable of knowing that and I try to come back to that piece of humility just maintaining that humility, like cheshbon and nefesh in the sense of trying to be the best that we can, but not cheshbon and nefesh in the sense of I understand this or it makes sense or trying to explain away somebody else's pain and sorrow as some kind of points along the way to something that's going to be better. Okay, well, thank you both. Those are really deep and important answers. I'd just like to add two points, if it's okay, to what you both said, really. And in terms of that humility you just mentioned, Shana, I know that again, quoting Rav Yondi Rosenzweig on my podcast a few weeks ago, of all the things that he said, this was the one that resonated most deeply with me when he talked about this particular point, this idea of doing Cheshpon HaNefesh. He said, if what you learn from Cheshpon HaNefesh is something that you already knew, God didn't have to bring a war in order to teach you that. If you're going to do Cheshpon HaNefesh and do it seriously and with depth and with honesty, you have to discover something which you didn't know before. And he used the example of achdut, of unity. We all agree that unity is important and it's something which is too often lacking. But we knew that already. 
truly to do proper cheshbon hanefesh means to find out something that you didn't realize before and have the humility to really go deep and try and understand and maybe change your perspective. And I thought for me and for my wife, Eliza, that was a line that very much resonated. And the second point I want to make is also along those same lines. I don't know if this will resonate or not. And I don't know if I got this from Rav Shagar or it simply was inspired by Rav Shagar. But sometimes when people say, we don't know the reason, as you were talking about, Shana, quoting the Gemara about Bilam, he didn't know his own donkey. How could he possibly think he knows the supreme mind of God? People sometimes assume, therefore, we don't understand God because we're not smart enough. If we had an infinite mind, then we could actually understand as if there is an understanding. And I sort of see it in the Kabbalistic scheme of things. We talk about how Chachma isn't the highest level. There's actually something above it, which is broadly called the divine will. That means that sometimes, and this is going to sound perhaps inappropriate, but it's not that we don't know the reason. It doesn't fall in the category of having a reason. It's something higher that we simply don't have the kelim. We don't have a vessel. Even if we had infinite intelligence, it's not in the category of intelligence. It's, it's in some other higher category that even if we were smarter, we couldn't relate to. That's just how I relate to that particular question. I don't know if it's comforting or the opposite, but sometimes I say our mistake is to think that it's understandable if we were only smarter and we just don't know enough, when maybe it's something completely different that isn't in that category of understanding whatsoever. That's that's how I see that. I guess we're getting close to the end now, but I'd like to ask you both, maybe in a general larger sense, about how you relate, and this is talking about everything we've talked about today, in some way a bit of a summary, but if your students come to you or children come to you and they simply say, on a practical level, guidance, that they're really having a hard time with their belief in God. They're having a hard time relating to God right now, and they would like some practical advice of how to have that relationship with him, which they believe has been, at least for them personally, somewhat severed. What would you recommend to them? And I guess I'll add to that question a second question, which is anybody who's struggling with doubts, practical advice, how are ways to perhaps go beyond those doubts or to live with those doubts or even to maybe overcome those doubts? Shana, what would you say? First of all, it is so important to give a lot of room and validation to the questions. Everyone has them. We all have them. Even really, really great people of faith have them. And I would say it's not just normal to have them. It's appropriate to have them. God wants us to be bothered by evil in the world. He wants us to be troubled by the kinds of things that we're experiencing. And just because we have these kinds of thoughts doesn't mean that we're not committed Jews. Uh, one of my favorite pieces by Rav Lichtenstein, The Source of Faith is Faith Itself, he makes this point where he writes that what I've received from all my mentors at home or in yeshiva was the key to confronting life, particularly modern life in all of its complexity. The recognition that it's not so necessary to have all the answers as to learn to live with the questions. And he continues that regardless of what issues, moral, theological, textual, historical, vexed me, I was confident that they had been raised by masters far sharper and wiser than myself. And if they had remained impregnably steadfast in their commitment, so should and could I. That gives me a tremendous amount of strength, meaning these questions are questions that everybody has, even really, really great, really smart, really committed people. So that's the first thing. And um, I would add to that, just first of all, in terms of living with it, and then I'll give some practical things. But I think sometimes an additional piece is that when we're having a hard time and we try too fast to push through it, it often makes the struggle greater. 
this is true in any, you know, someone's feeling down or they're feeling uh, jealous or they're feeling angry and they try like they, they know that's a bad emotion. So they try to push through it. A lot of times the emotion is like, no, you're feeling that. I'm not going to let you pretend that you're not. And it's like, I think of it as a bully. It's like someone's coming at you and you have to give them, it's that fine line between like, if you ignore the bully, then they try harder. If you let them take over. So then, you know, then you can function. It's that fine line of kind of have, um, being able to engage with the difficult feelings. So when someone's having difficult feelings, doubts, questions, religious challenges, the first thing that um, I would tell them is that not just as we see other people have had those questions, but that it's okay. It's really, really okay right now to be having those feelings, accept them, accept them in a real way. A lot of times I find that just that acceptance in of itself quiets the doubts, meaning if you could let the doubt peak, and then like really feel it a lot of times then it subsides like a wave that kind of like washes over you and then you feel actually a little calmer or a little bit more connected because I think oftentimes in life let's say especially with religious doubts it's like there's the doubt and then there's the anxiety around the doubt there's the doubts that you're having and then there's like oh no what does this mean do I not want to be religious anymore am I not committed anymore what will the rest of my life look like and if you could just deal with the doubt and say okay this is a normal doubt I'm not the only one having it then a lot of times it actually eases the experience so that's like kind of general in terms of like the struggles that people are having at this time but um, I'll share a few concrete practical ideas that have been helping me in terms of maintaining that kind of religious feeling. Um, I'll briefly share three. The first one is that we've been here before and our tradition and our texts, as uh, Rabdani said earlier, they, they give us the stories and the words and the tools to find the strength to continue. So whether it's Akedat Yitzchak and the idea of sacrifice or whether it's Hanukkah, which is around the corner and the idea of the few against the many and feeling like the entire world is against us. We know that we're part of a tradition that is so rich and vibrant that we can mine in order to reconnect, even just saying halal and Bosh Chodesh Kislev gave me that feeling like like Rav Johnny was describing reading the Torah on Simchat Torah morning and feeling like these words are talking about right now. I felt that saying Hallel this week that sometimes we think of Hallel as all praise and Hodul Hashem and you know praise and thanks but there's so many lines of Minha Mitzra Karatika that we're calling out from the streets of you know distress or Ana Hashem Hoshiana Hashem should save us or Hashem Liboz Riva Nirebisoni he should see the downfall of my enemies even the idea of Loamuk like please help me not die so that I could live and 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 talk about what you've done or your story yes you've chastened me and we're suffering but you haven't given me over yet to death I find um faith in that experience of realizing we're not the first ones clearly to experience hard times and we have a language that speaks to that and that energizes I guess my feeling of like we're part of something bigger. So that's one thing. Um, a second thing that personally helps me with faith is also maintaining perspective in um in a different kind of way, which is with all the difficulties, and there are many, the pain and the mourning and the fear that I'm feeling and that we're all feeling, there's still never been a better time for the Jews in the history of the world. The fact that we have our own country, the fact that we have an ability to protect ourselves and defend ourselves is something that you know that our ancestors, like they just wouldn't believe. 
I think about my ancestors who perished in the Holocaust only 80 years ago, knowing that the world hates us now because they think our army is too strong, because they think that we are too good at defending ourselves. We are not in the same place that we were. And when we take a step back and we kind of see ourselves in relation to the long arc of Jewish history, I think that is able to help us reconnect to our God and to our people. And our ancestors, like Rabbi Akiva, who was mentioned a lot and who I so love, I have a son named Akiva. He's named after Rabbi Akiva. He was tortured because uh, he was Jewish. Now, thousands of years later, on October 7th, Israelis were massacred and tortured because they were Jewish. But already on that day, we had people, soldiers and civilians who chose to fight back and to be Moser Nefesh Al-Kadush Hashem by choice in the sense of like we are driving down there and we're standing up and we're, and we're drafting. And that also is invigorating that throughout all of Jewish history, we've, we've never given up and that ultimately we will prevail because we have a God that values life and we have a people that sanctify life and a people that stand for good. And good's going to have to win out at the day because there's no other viable option. And finally, the last thing that I'll say that I always come back to is that sometimes when we have doubts and we feel far, but we find ourselves still wanting to feel close and still wanting to connect, I think that that is the most authentic and the most genuine proof that we still have faith and that we're still in a relationship. And I often think about it as like, when I was dating my husband, it was getting serious. And I remember one time saying to him, um, I don't know, I'm so nauseous. And he said to me, is that a good thing? And I said, I don't know, I'm just like nervous and scared. And, and then we talked about it. And I shared my concerns. And I shared my, you know, my anxieties. And afterwards, like, I felt so much better. And I remember thinking to myself, one second, if like the very person or relationship that is causing me you know, doubt or angst, but then I turn to them and through that somehow I feel calmer, I feel better, I feel more at ease, then doesn't that mean that I'm in something that's actually very strong? So I think that when we find ourselves even just wanting, like I feel distant, but I don't want to feel distant, but I do feel distant. Even that wanting to feel close when we hit a rough patch means that I still know where I want to turn when I'm feeling off. And that in and of itself is a really strong source of faith, I think, for me. That reminds me a bit of the story that Elie Wiesel tells in, I believe it was in The Trial of God. He talks about the story that was the inspiration for that novel, that play that he wrote. And he talks about, I think it was in a concentration camp or in a ghetto where three important Rabbanim got up and they said, we're going to have a trial of God because he has done unfair things to his people. They had a trial, they had a prosecutor, they had a defense attorney. In the end, they declared God guilty of these terrible crimes. And after they'd rendered the guilty verdict, they went to Davin Marv to pray the evening service. And I think that that actually says exactly what you're saying, which is that saying, as Johnny said before, why God, why? How could you do this to me? Doesn't necessarily preclude Davin Marv immediately afterwards and turning to the one who's giving you these doubts at the same time that you want to resolve them at the same time. I think that tension that you've mentioned repeatedly, Shana, is what it means to be a religious Jew, to live with that tension. Johnny, how about you? What practical tips or advice would you give to people who approach you with these kinds of doubts? So I've just created four bullet points, but actually this is something which I am dealing with with a number of my clients. And the four bullet points are axioms, actors, history, and hope. And I just want to explain all those four. So let's begin with axioms, because this whole conversation has highlighted the fact 
that sometimes people have assumptions about how God interacts in the world or how things are going to work out. And so their crisis comes when those assumptions do not come to fruition. And so doing some kind of audit of our assumptions, of our axioms relating to God and humanity is crucial. Oftentimes our errors in emunah are the things which are causing us the greatest anguish because we assume a certain ending to a story, a certain outcome to an event, and that doesn't happen. And we say, that's not how it's supposed to be. And the answer is, it was never supposed to be that way. That was your faulty logic. And uh, people like Rav Soloveitchuk, we've, of course, invoked him a number of times, rightly so, because his words are so resonant to these days, and of Lichtenstein and others. But as uh, he talks about how a person of faith, it, for them, life is more difficult. It doesn't think, mean that everything is going to work out according to the stories of the Bible. Instead, you're in this perpetual relationship with God. And the way uh, Rabbi Shana explained it is so, so beautiful. And that relationship means... There are moments of clarity and many moments of doubt, but that actually affirms the authenticity of the relationship. So point number one, doing some kind of audit of axioms is sometimes important to say, maybe the thing that's bothering you is not necessarily actually a thing. You know, it's like that comment of the Lubavitcher Rebbe, the God you don't believe in, I don't believe in either. And so the assumption you have of God, I, I agree, if that would be my assumption, I would be suffering a lot, lot more. Then let's talk about actors. Uh, actors, I don't mean in terms of a play, but instead, of course, and the events that are taking place uh, and have taken place. And there's a line that I've used in my teaching many times from Danis Prager and Joseph Telushkin's book, The Nine Questions People Ask About Judaism, when talking about the Shoah. And there they say, God did not build Auschwitz and its crematoria mended. The Holocaust may make faith in God difficult, but it makes faith in mankind impossible. And I'd take those words and slightly adapt it, and I'd say, God did not brutally murder, rape, and kidnap innocent men, women, and children in their homes. Men did. October 7th may make faith in God difficult, but it makes faith in mankind impossible. And really our struggle, our crisis right now is finding faith in humanity. And here in Israel, we have affirmed our faith in how we are looking out for each other and supporting each other. The swell of kindness, the volunteerism is, is just remarkable. So our faith in our people has increased. However, our faith in aspects of the wider world, not all, and many have been heartwarming warming, and we deeply appreciate all the expressions of support and active efforts for support. But actually, when you look at the wider world, uh, it's quite scary too, and you mentioned anti-Semitism at the beginning. But our crisis right now is our faith in mankind and how not just evil exists, but it's given oxygen to breathe, and space to roam, and strength to uh, express its uh, desire to kill and uh, demonstrate its hate. And so we need to be clear, who are the actors? Who am I putting on trial here? For sure, I do have questions with God. For sure, I cry out. But at the same time, I need to know that there are people who came and murdered our people, and those people are guilty. And perhaps part of the world is responsible for giving those people uh, that space, but assigning blame to the real actors is essential. I mentioned history as a third of the four axioms. What is history? So I want to quote to you from Rav Amital, Rav Yud Amital, but who said the following in 1993. He said, I heard a rumor, and I hope it's not true, 
that the important religious Zionist rabbi expressed some doubt as to whether Yom Atzmaut should be celebrated this year, 1993, uh, both for reasons of lots of terrorist activities and for the Oslo Accords. Uh, many people felt very much um, despondent. So what does Rav Amital say? The moment I heard it, a teaching of our sages came to mind, and the people wept on that night, referring to the Muraglim. Rav said the name of Rav Yochanan, that night was a night of Tisha B'Av. The Holy One, blessed be he, said, your weeping was baseless, and I'll set for you weeping for generations. And then he continues and explains that Chazal so powerfully. A person who sees only that night, only today, only now, has questions and doubts. But a person with a sense of history knows, like Rabbi Akiva, and we've mentioned Rabbi Akiva repeatedly, when he saw the folks emerging from the place of the Holy of Holies, the old men and women will yet sit in the open place of Jerusalem. And so we mourn and we cry for those many who were murdered, those many who are still kidnapped, and we pray for everything that can be done, that they should be released and they should come home safely. But we should remember the arc of history. As Rabbi Shana said, we've been here before. And knowing our history matters. We need to teach our history. And we don't do it well enough because actually history helps us find comfort by reminding ourselves of those previous tragedies and how we brought ourselves together. The very fact that we're here, a Jewish people in the land of Israel, is expressive of, the, of our history. And then the final thing is hope. And as Rabbi Sachs says, there's a vast difference between optimism and hope. Optimism is, I believe that tomorrow will be better without my effort. Hope is tomorrow may well be better, but only through my effort. I hope for the future, but I know it's reliant on me, on me as an individual, me as a community, me as a nation. And so hope is an essential value for the Jewish people. We know Hatikva is our national anthem. And so we need to hope uh, for the future, but do what needs to be done to create a better and safer future. So those are the four things that I would go through with somebody. Axioms, actors, history, and hope. Everything that you both said over the past hour has been so very helpful for me personally, and I'm sure for everybody listening. This has been a real opportunity for Chizuk, and I thank you so much for your wisdom and for your emotional honesty today, talking about your personal way of relating to these things, as well as the way you would speak to people about it. I'm feeling quite emotional from what you told me and from what you told everybody. So I want to thank both of you, Rabbi Johnny Solomon, Rabbi Shane Goldberg. Thank you for joining me. Thank you. Thank you. And I just want to thank you, Steph, for really raising like the tough questions that I think a lot of people are really dealing with and struggling with. Mm-hmm. That's kind of you to say thank you. Subscribe to The Orthodox Conundrum on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. Please visit jewishcoffeehouse.com for other episodes of The Orthodox Conundrum, as well as many other great podcasts, including Intimate Judaism, The Mamanides Minute, Chochmat Nashim, The Francisca Show, and Let My People Eat. I'd appreciate it if you go to Apple Podcasts and rate and review The Orthodox Conundrum. It takes literally two minutes. It's just giving a certain number of stars and writing one or two sentences. Please like The Orthodox Conundrum Podcast on Facebook and join our growing Facebook group, The Orthodox Conundrum Discussion Group, where you can feel free to discuss issues in orthodoxy in an honest and friendly environment. I hope you'll become a Jewish Coffeehouse patron on Patreon. Just click on the link in the description of this podcast and you can get bonus episodes, Jewish Coffeehouse merch, and more. You'll get special episodes on all sorts of topics that are only available to subscribers, and you'll be helping Jewish Coffeehouse spread our message of a welcoming, intellectually engaged, and honest orthodoxy. Just join Patreon. It's only a couple of dollars a month, and you can stop anytime, so join today. Finally, do you have a message that needs to get out? Do you want to promote your business, your organization, or your cause? 
The best way is by producing a podcast, and Jewish Coffee House can make it happen. I have experience producing hundreds of podcasts, both for myself and for satisfied clients. Whether you want to learn everything you need in one day, or relax and record and let me do the heavy lifting, Jewish Coffeehouse Productions will work with you to make it happen and make it even better than you imagined. Let me help you today. Write to me at scott at jewishcoffeehouse.com or go to jewishcoffeehouse.com, click on Productions, and sign up for a free consultation. Make your voice heard, promote your cause, sell your product, and engage an audience now. I'm Scott Kahn. This has been the Orthodox Conundrum on jewishcoffeehouse.com.